that's uh, integrating some of the general engineering classes, but also more of these interdisciplinary artistic aspects as well? Absolutely. It's a, it's a crazy blend of hardcore engineering and absolutely wacko creative arts. <laughs> uh, we also have a master program that focuses on information and communication technology for development, developing communities, and of course we have a PhD program that serves a very motley crew of people all over the, all over the intellectual map. So I've heard that these classes in these programs have near 50% gender ratios. What is it that's being done differently? Is it about uh, recruitment or is something that you're specifically offering? I I don't think we explicitly recruit that way, although we do attract exactly like 60% women in our undergraduate programs. And I think that's because the courses focus on project-based work, on work that's personally meaningful to people, that's radically cross-disciplinary, and small classes and, of course, instructors who care. So what are some of the other facets of Atlas? I know there's also the Black Box Media Theater. Yeah, so we have the Black Box Experimental Studio, which pretty much bi-weekly offers crazy, interesting avant-garde performances that are, again, cross-disciplinary, using high-tech means to do arts and... and, uh, and music and performance. We have the National Center for Women and Information Technology, which is promoting gender equity in the IT workplace, internet, uh, national 501c3 uh, thing. And then we have a series of events every week. We have amazing events. So we should, people should come to uh, atlas.colorado.edu and look at our events calendar to see just the crazy stuff that's coming up. Next week, Monday through Friday, we have something every week happening at the uh, Atlas Institute. So people should come and, and play with us. Fantastic. So that also brings me to the Blow Things Up Lab, which, as I understand, oh, uh, BTU Lab is also known. And Alicia, uh, you are the director of this program. Can you describe more about, I, I've heard it called a hacker space. What does that mean? Sure. So um, a hacker space, um, sometimes people also call them maker spaces, um, kind of got their start in Europe in uh, the 1990s or even sometimes in the 80s. Um, and they kind of got brought over to the U.S. within the past decade. Um, and so my background is with NYC Resistor, a hacker space in Brooklyn, um, which I helped found and then kind of came out here and thought this was a great uh, way to sort of infiltrate society and students and get all kinds of this different experimental interdisciplinary programming off the ground. So what's hap- what, what does this, um, how is the space integrating into the vision of technology and society? Sure. So we basically allow students to kind of play with all kinds of different tools in the lab. So we try to, you know, get kind of one of of all kinds of interesting different things that are coming out, like circuit printers, of course, 3D printers, laser cutters, um, watercolor robots, things like that. So we kind of get all these different tools and let students uh, explore those in, in, in a way that's not necessarily their class, right? So students take classes and they have assignments that are very directed and, you know, within the program, but this is kind of a space where students can can own the space, do what they want in the space, and really discover new interesting things and make connections in ways that they might not in their classwork. So they might be going out and bringing in people from the community talking about their particular technology they're building. They might be working together cross-disciplinary and finding somebody else that is in the community that's building things like that as well. So who has access then? It sounds like you're talking about students. Is this undergrads, graduates, also high school students? Yeah, actually, it's it's a little of everything. Um, there are some high school students there. Um, primarily, it's currently um, 
graduates, undergraduates, and staff and faculty of the university. But we um, definitely invite the community. We're also having an open house on March 3rd from 5 to 6.30. So we invite the community to come and see what we're all about. Um, but we always uh, you know, love having community members stop by. Excellent. I was going to ask you, what are some of the exciting things happening right now? Sounds like the open house. Any other events? Yeah. Um, well, we also just had the Fix-It Clinic, um, which was another way to engage the community. So those are community members that help you fix your broken technologies. Um, but another way that we'll be continuously engaging is also from working with the other hackerspaces around Boulder and kind of trying to make sure that the landscape is kind of filling all possible gaps. So there's Solid State Depot here in Boulder, um, and that's kind of for general population as well. Um, and then at the library, there's uh, um, the Foundry, a makerspace that's kind of guided towards teens a bit. Um, but we're kind of trying to figure out how we can all work together and, and bring more events and kind of cross-disciplinary events and things like that to Boulder. Well, that sounds like it's got some ideas for the future, but anything else looking out into the horizon? How do you see the, the lab developing, integrating? Yeah, so we have a number of uh, workshops um, that are coming up. A lot of, um, there's a lot of focus on wearables right now in the world. So we have a couple wearables workshops coming up. Um, we have um, a couple artists that are being invited in. Um, Addie Wagon Connect will be doing some sort of workshop when she's here in April. Um, and there's just, you know, constant, uh, constant hacking that goes on. There's a maker collective meeting every Tuesday night, as well as our lab meeting too. Thank you, Alicia. And Mark, anything else coming up for Atlas? Oh, there's so much coming up. So at the end of April, we have an expo where we showcase everything that's going on in the Atlas Institute. Uh, in the May semester, we have a, a three-week course on digital media boot camp to add, uh, for, open to everyone, and, and also a robot fabrication class that we're about to mount. Uh, but next week is March Mayhem, so take a look at our webpage. Come visit us uh, in person or online, see what's going on. We have a game, de uh, game development talk on Monday afternoon at 4 o'clock by Megan Fox uh, from Glass Bottom games. We have a toy symposium on Wednesday afternoon at 4 o'clock with uh, CEOs of local uh, tech companies and visitors from Japan. And then Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock we have the cosplay anime otaku culture. Uh, we really love to see people come and visit us. Well, thank you. That was Mark Gross and Alicia Gibb from the Atlas Institute at CU Boulder. To check out some of their upcoming events and programs, you can find a link later on our blog at howonearthradio.org. It's a fire These dreams have passed me by This salvation I desire Keeps getting... You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So the snowy, frigid weather here in February may have put wildfires out of people's thoughts, but as firefighters know well, wildfire season has actually become a year-round reality. In the past decade or so, wildfires have been getting more intense, more dangerous, and more frequent. No one knows this better than the firefighters themselves. A new short film that will be screened in Boulder this week documents the changes taking place with wildfires and the impact they're having on wildfires, on wildfires in particular. The film is called Unacceptable Risk, Firefighters on the Front Lines of Climate Change. One of the film's creators, journalist Dan Glick of the Story Group, joins us in the studio. 
Dan was an editor of the National Climate Assessment that came out last year. Dan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Susan. And our other guest is Don Whittemore, a longtime firefighter himself. And he was assistant chief of Rocky Mountain Fire, also commander on the massive Four Mile Canyon Fire of September 2010 and many other fires. Don, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Don and Dan. <laughs> so I want to start by just jumping in and airing a short clip of the film, the teaser. We're being confronted and, and asked to suppress or battle fires that didn't exist 20 years ago. When we see fuel loads that have increased over time, when we see weather and climatology that has gone to extremes, we don't have a fire season. We, we have a year-round fire season, and, and any, any month of the year is conducive to, to wildfire. So that's a powerful, potent start. Um, Dan, I want to ask you first, so how did this come about? I know you worked on the National Climate Assessment. You've covered climate change and environmental issues for decades, right? A couple. And this film in particular, how did it come about? Well, one of the things uh, I really came in sharp focus working on the National Climate Assessment is that climate change impacts are happening now and they're affecting Americans all over the country. And since I live here and I've lived through the smoke and the haze and the evacuations of the last few years of these fires, I thought firefighters understand the impacts of climate change in their everyday lives. I wanted to focus on them rather than the science or rather than, uh, you know, the implications or the policy implications. But how is this affecting the lives of everyday Americans? And those who are literally on the front lines. Literally on the front fire lines of, of trying to deal with all these cascading impacts of climate change on an already existing stressed system. Yeah, and we'll get in a little more about the film later. But um, Don Whittemore, I want to ask you, since you are literally <laughs> on the front lines and, and leading those who are often, what, what are you seeing and what's so different now, not necessarily today, but versus years ago even? It's this big evolution um, where uh, we've suppressed fires for so long. We have climate change, which means the temperatures are getting warmer, uh, hotter, drier, uh, longer throughout the season, and people living in the interface. And, and Dan mentioned it's cascading events. These all become cumulative effects that continue to spiral. So um, we're just getting progressively more severe, more intense, more destructive fires year after year. So the Arizona fire was probably the most deadly for firefighters themselves, not necessarily because of these issues, though, right? I'm curious, from your seat, from your stand, look, what's been the worst of it? The worst of it is really that we're putting people on the front lines. You know, if fires are in the true wilderness, from an ecological perspective, they're doing good. But what happens is when you put humans into the woods, um whether they're homes, recreations, and whatnot, then firefighters are going to go to extreme lengths to save lives, are going to go to extreme lengths to save property. And so not only are the fires themselves getting more challenging from uh, an environmental side, um, we're putting firefighters at greater risk trying to protect homes and trying to save lives. And you mentioned the interface. Are you referring to the wildland urban interface? Talk about look, where specifically, because it's right in our backyards here in Boulder, right? Yeah, certainly. The 
the interface for here in Boulder, it's anything west of Broadway, um, you should consider yourself living in the interface. And if you live just on the east side of Broadway, uh, the folks in Colorado Springs would probably tell you you're part of the interface as well. But really, you're talking about from a firefighting perspective, up the canyon, or those who are really sort of on the edge of the woods, right? Yeah, the bars that are going to be of most concern will be those that start up in the woods, up in the mountains, um, in the communities west of Boulder. But when we have the Chinook winds that often blow through, um, we've had fires that start up there and have come down and just raced across Broadway and on into the grasslands um, well east of Broadway. So, But it's those several, I believe, thousand homes that are uh, scattered throughout the woods in west of Boulder. And, and I used to live there. I had to evacuate my house where I couldn't actually help my wife evacuate. Um, where was that? That was up in Boulder Heights. Um, but I had to instruct her to evacuate with all her animals and kids and stuff, but I couldn't help her because I had to be in charge of the fire. So I knew that um, I have since moved down out of the mountains because I'm not willing to put her at that risk, and nor was I willing to think of putting firefighters at risk. Um, yeah, it seems such a, I don't know if it's a paradox, but it's what draws a lot of people to a place like Boulder so that they can live not just walk in, but really live in places like that. And yet, is it fair from your seat as a firefighter? Oh, I'm not sure as a firefighter. It's up to me to determine what's fair. Or as taxpayers. Even as taxpayers. I mean, I understand that argument, um, but there's people who live in hurricane zones and earthquake zones and flood zones. Um, You know, as society grows, we're moving out of the ideal living habitat into more marginal habitats. Um, And that's part of this whole continuum that makes disasters more profound year after year. Um, So, yes, do do we need to think seriously about policies, about climate change, about where people live? You bet. It's, It's some challenging discussions. Yeah, so Dan Glick, you referred to this cascade of events. So you've got climate change, you've got sort of fire suppression as part of fire management policy over over decades, and then those living in the interface. So where's the climate change connection? It's probably hard to tease one out from the other, but what are we seeing now? Well, I think one of the great oversimplifications of this climate change discussion, and it's not a debate, I won't grace it with the word debate, (laughs) um, is, is that climate change is a component of many other things. So climate change doesn't cause hurricanes. Climate change is making hurricanes more intense. That's what the science tells us right now. Climate change isn't causing wildfires. Climate change is causing the temperatures to go up. Colorado temperatures have almost doubled since 1970 uh, compared to the, 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 national, the global average. Uh, so when it gets warmer, it gets drier. That enhances uh, drought conditions. And what what causes fires? Well, all kinds of things cause fires, but lightning strikes, people. And then when the fires break out, they're, they're breaking out in conditions that are already predisposed to go big. And then added to that, as part of this cascading effect, it sounds like we've just got more fuel out there from the controlling of fires. Right? Yeah, certainly with 100 years of uh, successful fire suppression, you know, it's um, where every 10 years or so we should have been thinning out the forest in terms of 
uh, dead in regeneration, we've just added we've added more fuel to our stoves. So are you seeing more firefighters actually saying, I don't want to take this risk. I don't want to fight this fire. Or are they as relentlessly devoted as they've always been? I just wonder how much doubt is seeping in given the increasing dangers. Well, I think firefighters in general have become much more educated about the risks and hazards. And as fire managers, um, when we make decisions, we're taking that into account. So I know we've got tons to cover. I want to ask you, Dan, so we can learn more about this while seeing the short film. Tell us more about that and, and where. Well, the film interviews Don and and three other career firefighters, uh, and they tell really, really moving and awestruck stories about what it's like to actually be in these fires. Uh, we're going to have the world premiere tonight at the Dairy Center at uh, but unfortunately, Which that's sold out. That, I hear. that is sold out. It's a free event, but still. <laughs> uh, and then tomorrow at the Boulder Library at the Canyon Theater at seven o'clock. So I think there's some tickets left for that, uh, and and we'll eventually get it online and and spread it out uh, to the world as as we can. Great. And for more info, what website can people go to? Uh, you can go to www.thestorygroup.org, and we'll have updates on on where the screenings are going to be. Well, thanks so much, both of you. My guests were Dan Glick, co-executive producer of the new short documentary called Unacceptable Risk, Firefighters on the Front Lines of Climate Change. So as he said, there'll be two screenings tonight and tomorrow night. And uh, there'll also be discussions after the screenings with firefighters, climate scientists, and Dan and other filmmakers, including photojournalist Ted Wood. Thanks, Don Whitmore. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dan Glick. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer, producer, and engineer for today was myself, Kendra Kruger. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Mates of State and Portishead. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger.